Hello and welcome to A Truth Universally Acknowledged with me, Harriet Minter. This is the podcast for you if when you go on holiday your suitcase is 90% books and 10% sun cream. Each week I talk to an amazing author about the process of writing and how they do it, as well as asking you to hold me accountable with my own writing and giving you a little creative project to have a go at if you're feeling inspired. This week I talk to barrister-turned-crime-writer Harriet Tice. We talk about where she gets her inspiration from, why we've both stopped drinking, and the reality of writing a book only to get to the end and realise you're going to have to rewrite it. But first up, how is my own novel going? Well, I've had a good week. Is this a miracle? Will I finally finish this bloody book? Well, probably at some point, but not soon. What I've learned so far about writing is that writers are definitely not paid enough. This is very hard. But this week has been good, and so it's meant that I've been thinking about that elusive thing, flow. How is it some weeks the process of writing is the easiest in the world, and other weeks it feels like pulling teeth? Now, it sort of offends my feminist principles to say this, but I do think it's partly linked up to my menstrual cycle. Doing anything the week before my period feels like wading through treacle and the week after like riding a bike downhill. Um, So that could be it. But I also think it's about balance. I've had a week that has felt perfectly balanced. So there has been time with others and time alone. Work to do, but not so much that I'm overwhelmed or so little that I procrastinate. Lots of rest, but also a little bit of excitement. Those sort of weeks when I can create them It feels like I can create a book too. Of course, creating those weeks is an effort in itself and really who has the time for that sort of scheduling? But still, maybe I could give it a go and see if I can recreate the elusive flow. On to this week's interview. Harriet Tice built a career in the law before deciding that perhaps she'd like to turn her hand to writing. With all the stories from her previous working life, writing twisty, turny crime books seemed an obvious choice. Her new book, It Ends at Midnight, tells the story of a barrister whose past is threatening her future. Like all good novelists, though, Harriet is already on to the next book, even if the pandemic has slightly thrown her flow. Here she is. So I'm very excited that this week I am joined by my namesake, always lovely to meet a fellow Harriet, author, former lawyer, and thriller writer extraordinaire, Harriet Tice. Hello, Harriet. Hi, Harriet. Also lovely to meet another namesake. Um, And thank you so much for inviting me on. It's really nice to meet you, albeit virtually. I know. I sort of say to everybody, well, maybe one day we'll do this in person, which would be so exciting. But I also know that I went to my kind of like, not first in-person event since the pandemic. I've been to in-person events, but like first big networky kind of in-person event post-pandemic the other day and I did not know how to do it I had to leave have you had that experience can you still talk to people I have been able to talk to people socially I haven't yet done any work you know sort of more networky really since all of this started everything I did with the publication of my last book was virtual I'm doing a proof drop on Wednesday, which is amazing, but I'm actually incredibly jumpy about going and talking to people and introducing myself. But it's it's the thing, I just don't know what to wear anymore. 
I just don't know how to do clothes because it's all been, you know, elasticated waistbands and big jumpers and, and you know, and from if as long as you look respectable yeah. from the neck up kind of thing. And it's, yeah, being in a massive group, that's something I think be very, very overwhelming. I mean, I'm interested that's been your experience because I'm quite sure it will be mine. I mean, I wasn't great at it before. It was, I realised it was like one of those skills that this is a, a weird start to this conversation. We'll come back to books in a minute. But it was one of those skills that I had definitely had to learn like I remember as a child I was quite a shy child and I wasn't particularly like good at you know making friends easily it it took me a bit of a while to learn how to do it I think it's I honestly only think I've been able to do it because of regular practice and I haven't had that practice it's very strange I think I think that's right and I've just stopped drinking for the moment as well so I think I'm going to be coming into these things completely cold is is going to be a shock to my tiny system um <laughs> less danger of indiscretion i suppose i and, hope and, so and being foolish if one's sober but yes <laughs> it will be we'll get there i think we're all in the same boat as well apart from a few notable exceptions at downing street most of us have not been you know massively partying for the last few years so i think we're all just going to have to ease into this together very gently and and as long as we're kind to each other it should be okay i know i remember years ago i used to do lots of quite woo woo coaching events which i love and i remember going to one where they had an introvert's corner where basically if it all just got too much, you could go and sit in the introvert's corner and nobody would talk to you. It's like, this love is genius. That. I love that. I absolutely love that. I think that should be instituted at every event and festival from now on. <laughs> right. Well, so now we know how we're going to do all events. So let's talk about what happens before the book events. And that is the writing. So Harriet, tell us a little bit about, for anyone who hasn't read your books, the type of books you write and why you went down that particular route they are I suppose the best explanation of them is that they're psychological thrillers in that they uh, mostly look at the psychological journey mostly of a first person female protagonist as she you know works out that her life's in a mess and how she's going to make it better and how to escape from danger that either she or people around her are in. Um, I'm not sure if that's the best explanation, but that's that's how the framework works in my head. They are, the thing I think that makes them, shall we say, uniquely mine is that I also bring in, at least I have done for my first two and for my newest book, It Ends at Midnight, is that they also run alongside aspects of law, that there's Mm -hmm. a trial or something to do with a barrister's career because I used to be a criminal barrister and having given that up um, after I had kids because it was just too complicated to balance it all off, it seemed to be rather a waste not to use all of that year of those years of research and semi-hard work um, for something much more constructive and much more enjoyable, which is the which are the thrillers that I've written. And I think there is a lovely tradition, actually, of criminal barristers then writing really good crime novels because actually they have seen it all. And I had a brief foray into wanting to be a criminal barrister before realising that I was not cut out for it. And I still tell the stories of the mini pupillages I did because they were just astonishing. You get to see all of life. 
Yes. And you're seeing life very much at the sharp end when yeah. people's emotions are at the most raw and they're the most afraid. It's, I mean, it's a very, very aggressive and stressful environment. But I mean, it is fascinating as well. I mean, you really do see people as they truly are under pressure. And the situations that they're in can be absolutely extraordinary. And, and even, I mean, my practice never got particularly developed. I did two Crown Court trials, one of which was a, an affray, which had been a fight. And the other of which was someone traveling on a forged bus ticket, which caused huge hilarity. And everyone's like, why is she, you know, she's opted for trial by jury. It was a complete waste of time and everyone's money. But of course, the thing is that if you are convicted of that, it's an offensive dishonesty, which means that you're then unemployable in so many aspects. Because as soon as you see that somebody's got a conviction for dishonesty on their record, you know, you wouldn't give them a job because it figures, doesn't yeah. it? It's a very um, fraught environment. And I think out of that, a lot of very, very good drama can spring you know it does give you a lot of inspiration so you had this experience you sort of had the knowledge and then you went and did an MA in crime writing is that right yes I mean I worked up to it I had been thinking about writing and I just had not quite known how to start and then and this was several years before I started my MA um, a friend of mine went to do an MA in creative writing and it was really strange because my first reaction when I heard it was one of complete rage I was just how dare he this is and then I realized of course it wasn't rage yeah. at all it was massive jealousy and it was also just I why am I not doing this why had I not thought of it and so I looked at his course I think he'd gone to Royal Holloway and I looked at the course and I looked at the requirements and you needed to submit 5,000 words for the application and I thought well I haven't even got I've not even got a parrot I've never written a sentence <laughs> and so it gave me the kick up the ass I needed yeah. I didn't do anything for ages because you know I just sat on it and then in the end I sort of started off with a little evening course and out of that I got a 2,000 word short story and I liked it you know I thought this is fun I can do this this doesn't feel impenetrable but the next stage of course was taking a short story and I thought well I'd quite like to try and write a novel but how on earth do you write a novel because that's a loss of words you know 2,000 I'm saying 80,000, bloody hell, how are you going to get 80,000 words? <laughs> it makes sense. So I then I signed up to do, I mean, I did quite a lot of, I was a bit of a course junkie because I did a course at City University. In fact, I went back, I'd done my law conversion course there mm. back in the 90s and I hated it. It was an awful year, full of <laughs> awful people doing this awful subject. But then going back felt like a way of righting the wrongs of my past by writing, oh, I like that you see yeah. um, I went back and I did this novel course an evening novel course while I didn't get a complete novel out of that and certainly not one that would ever get anywhere with agents it gave me much more of a taste for it so I sort of kept plodding on and plodding on and the rejections got better um, <laughs> which you know in that it wasn't just form and being yeah. ignored I was beginning to receive feedback and then in the end I thought you know what maybe I should look at an MA by that stage though I was feeling a bit reluctant to do a more general prose fiction one because I knew I wanted to write crime and I had a perhaps unfair prejudice that people might be prejudiced against crime 
and genre work that you know I could turn mm. up somewhere and they'd all be like we wish to do a short story in the ludic form <laughs> we live in school we should be excluding the letters e and f um, and I'd be sat there going yeah I want to do a psychological thriller preferably domestic noir um, being sold in supermarkets my dream yeah and um Fortunately, just at the stage at which I looked into it, um, UEA had started their MA in crime fiction. So completely specialising in exactly what I wanted to do, but also taking it seriously, which it ought to be. Because, you know, that this whole sort of business of genre and what's mm -hmm. literary and what's not is, I mean, yeah, that's another whole discussion. But, you know, there's some superb crime fiction, just as there's some shit literary fiction. Yeah. So there it was. It was sort of this amazing reading list. And it was a two-year distance course. UEA is in Norwich, but I live in London. So I only had to go up three times a year. And the idea was that by the end of the course, you had a complete manuscript, which hopefully would be of publishable quality, i.e. that it would be good enough at least to start submitting to agents. Yeah. And that's what happened you know I did and the book I wrote on that was Blood Orange which was my debut so and which did very well kind of worked out yeah. yeah I loved what you said there about you know actually here was somebody who was taking this seriously because I think a lot of the writers I've spoken to and this podcast is specifically about commercial fiction and commercial fiction for women right I, I love that you said I want to be in supermarkets I agree I do not want to be a penniless novelist. I want to be, I want to be in supermarkets. I really want you to pick me up on route on your holiday. You know, that to me is like, that's what writing is for. And there are people out there writing beautiful literary fiction. I'm thrilled for them and I hope they enjoy it, but it's, it's not for me. Everyone I've spoken to said they have had at some point that voice, which says, Oh, is this going to be not taken seriously or is it going to be dismissed? Or am, am I going to be thought lesser of in some way, shape or form? Because, I don't want to write the next great novel. I want to write a really good book that people enjoy reading. And actually what I think like the UEA course is and things like that says, it's hard. It's hard to write a really good book. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's hard to, it's hard to catch people's interest. It's mm. hard to keep people turning pages. It's hard to sustain a plot so that it can actually deliver surprises. And, you know, good writing is good writing when it comes down to it, perhaps slightly less by way of description. I mean, I'm not totally sure what really, I, I mean, of course, I know what differentiates literary from crime or from romantic or, or whatever. But I mean, it's, and this is, again, another conversation perhaps to have, but if you look at what are described as some of, say, the great American novels yeah. by male authors, mm -hmm. which are essentially multi-generational family sagas, no more, no less, with a whole load of relationships, you know, failing and succeeding and people falling in love and falling out of love. And, and I mean, and how that differentiates in any way from the romance, you know, you'd have to tell me because... <laughs> It's just nonsense. It's absolute nonsense to say that, that that one is one is good literature and the other is trash when they're exactly the same thing. I think basically the definition of the great American novel versus good romance novel is the sex is considerably worse in the great American novel. This is also very true. Yes, it's much less sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is there when you are writing for anyone who wants to write crime fiction or is thinking about it or looking at it 
did you discover in this kind of learning process about it if you're writing romance there are beats that have to be hit you know there's kind of there are things within that genre that say this has to happen is it the same for crime yes i mean in the sense that you have to create a question to which the reader is desperate to know the answer. I mean, in a funny way, I'm saying that when I know that that actually applies across the board to all books, because otherwise, why on earth are you going to keep reading? I mean, very few books you'll keep reading just for the sheer beauty of the prose, but generally it's because your interest has been piqued in some way and you want to know what the conclusion is going to be for, for the characters. I think that in crime, the questions are more shall we say life or death there's more jeopardy you know it's not just going to be is that boy I like going to catch eyes with me across the classroom it's like is that boy I like going to turn out to be a serial killer but you really just have to set up a series of questions it's like you've got the 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 real narrative which is the the real answer to the questions but you have to keep that hidden and hope that nobody actually picks up on what it is and then you have the false narrative which is the the story that you hope the reader is going to think is what so that they feel that they're being so you've got the really uh. obvious clues they'll disregard because it's too obvious then you have the the next thing where they think they're being clever and you have to try and, and of course they are being clever but you've got to try and be more clever than that to sort of have the third line that they haven't picked out at all and i'm not quite sure it's very interesting looking at the feedback from readers to, mm. to my books because some people will say, and you know, you can have a one star and a five star next to each <laughs> other and frequently do, I do have that. <laughs> you know, the one star is saying, I worked it out immediately. I knew exactly what was going to happen and from the start. And you just think, really? Okay, interesting. Mm. And then you have someone else saying it came completely out of the blue. That was the most amazing twist. I had no idea. The other thing is that any kind of twist has to be born out of the text. It's got to be something that's actually earned by yeah. the beats that you've created. You can't just, you know, suddenly ram in something completely unexpected. You know, your sort of twist deus ex machina cannot. Yeah. Or if it does happen, that's cheating. I mean, that there is, I think it was Elmore Leonard had a, series of rules for writing crime that you know you're not allowed identical twins <laughs> um, but you can't have i think secret passages time slips there were various things that you're completely forbidden to use because again it's cheating i mean for me it's it's about sort of creating a question and then just trying to ramp it up yeah. to give it as much tension as possible also short chapters yeah. very good short chapters and if you can possibly leave a bit of a cliffhanger at the at the end of each chapter but i don't know quite how i mean at the moment i'm just about to start writing my next one and i am pretty much at the stage of googling how to write a novel again <laughs> i'm saying all of this and i'm like that sounds really good harriet but what's it mean how do you do this i don't know how. <laughs> do you plot it out before you start though are you do you know kind of exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to happen not exactly um but I do try and have well I mean I, it depends actually would be the real answer to that in Blood Orange in my first one I knew I knew how it started obviously and I knew how it ended that end scene yeah 
was always very, very clear in my head right from the beginning. But I didn't actually know to whom that was going to happen or how we would get there. So, and I'd sort of kept changing as we went along. Um, and it was only when I was about two thirds of the way through that I decided who the baddie was, so to speak, or you know, who or who was going to be responsible for which parts of of which nastiness. Lies was such a difficult book to write. This is going to sound awful. I can't actually remember how I did it. I just know that it was messy, but it I pulled it together in the end. Midnight, I thought I had a plan and I had done a four or five page plan, which I'd gone through with my editor. And then I think I diverged from it quite significantly <laughs> and it turned into rather a different book. It worked except for the fact that, and I think we were talking about this before we started mm -hmm. recording, but when it came to the big, the first big edit, the first structural edit, they asked me to flip everything. And the reason I'm saying this is because Harriet asked me a question. The first series of proofs that have been sent out, the last paragraph of the of the first load of proofs has got the wrong name. And it's because I didn't correct that when I was flipping who's responsible for what. And again, who's the nastiest? I had it a different way around. And then it was suggested to me that maybe it would work better if I changed it. But yes, actually, that makes perfect sense. I am going to make that reversal. I am going to flip it. And it sort of it was a strange, everything changed and also nothing changed because I was able to keep the main substance of everything. But it just showed how if you switch the names around and it was so much stronger the other way that it, it was a really funny process. So I plot and then it as the best laid plans, it just <laughs> never, ever, ever works out. And then I end up pantsing it. And it hasn't been because I intended to pants it. It's just that it sort of I'm not saying it in a woo way, but as the characters flesh themselves out, you know, they, they do things differently. And as you get to know the characters better, of course, they would do things in a different way from what you, you know, to do a really elaborate plan in advance is great, but they're just going to sit there and say, yeah, fuck off, I'm not doing that. I want to do something completely different. And, and I think in order to be true to the characters, sometimes you have to be guided by what they're doing. And of course, it's your own subconscious just knows the story better than your conscious mind knows. I mean, what I'm doing at the moment for the new one that I'm writing is that I'm trying to get to know the world very thoroughly. So I'm doing a lot of work on on because I'm it's a slightly different I'm doing a slight departure from law and London. Um, and so I'm spending a lot of time sort of researching the area and just thinking about the setting and thinking about the individual that all the family tree, which isn't something I've done before. So this one's going to be more planned. But I bet you, I bet you, whatever plan I do, it's, there's no way the end book <laughs> will look anything like it. I, I, that I could tell you that now. But And that's why editors are marvellous things, because they see what you mean, and yeah. then they work it out for you. Because you can't always if it's just you, can you? I love the kind of comfort you have in that. A friend of mine said that very different when she has a work project and she said for years and years I used to get every single work project and she's like I would procrastinate for weeks panicking about this project and not getting it done and worrying about it and then worrying about the fact that I was worrying about it and then procrastinating to avoid the procrastinating and so on and so forth and she's like there's a two-week period in every project I do where I do nothing and I just stress about doing nothing and she said and now I just see that as part of the process so it's like for you I've plotted it out 
but actually part of the process is allowing it to change. Yes, and I think having that organic approach to it is, it is freeing knowing that you can fix things. I mean, people have very different processes. I mean, I've been looking at the historical crime writer, Laura Shepard Robinson, did a thread on Twitter yesterday where she was saying that her process is rather different, that she likes to edit very thoroughly as she goes. So she sort of builds incrementally. And if she does a major plot change from what she's planned in advance, then she'll go back and she'll edit so that when she actually finishes the draft, it's pretty much complete and it doesn't need that much work doing. I applaud that greatly. And I'd say that that's very much how I did things during my MA, because my MA was on a basis of 10,000 words, then that's critiqued, and then you go back and change, and then you move forward. And that's, I mean, it's definitely a good way of doing things, but, I have found it to be, I've got better narrative drive, I think, where I have just plowed through the first draft, acknowledging that it might well be shit in parts, acknowledging that it's going to need to have fixes. But now that I've gone through the experience of changing the killer, of changing changing who's dead, of changing the motivation, I mean, I've changed from first person to third person, (laughs) from present tense to past tense, you know, you start to feel a little bit like, you know, bring on your structural edits, how bad can it be? And that the whole thing is, it's all writing. It's all just different kinds of writing and different approaches. And, And I think once I know, once I've got to the end, and once I know really what the ending is and why, that's when I can make sure that the foundations and the you know all, all of the building is is structurally sound yeah but i do need to jerry build a little bit to start with just to sort of work out exactly what happens and and i don't know which way is more efficient my punt is probably they both take about the same amount of time you'll be redrafting a lot whether you're redrafting chapter by chapter or whether you're redrafting from the beginning of the draft and then you're yeah. going through it nobody writes something perfect from the beginning. I mean, that just doesn't happen unless they're, I don't know, a genius, but most normal people never, it's never perfect to start with. And also that idea that actually it probably depends on who you are and what you like. So if you are somebody who likes things to get it sort of neat and sorted and done, and then you can move on, well, you're better off just investing the time getting it neat and sorted and done and moving on and if you're somebody like you and like me who's like let's just get to the end and then I'll work it out then you're better off just getting to the end as quickly as you can and going back and editing there's a chapter in blood orange which has been it's never received any edits at all practically I mean apart from the odd bit because there was just one scene which has ended up being and I knew it was I did know it was perfect when I finished it I mean if I do say so myself but that kind of experience where you write something you're just like actually I know and I know on every objective level this is always going to be unchanged because this is doing exactly what it needs to do but you know I mean I wish to god that one could get that all the time but you know (laughs) I've not had that in I've not had that in you know sort of four books since kind of thing but (laughs) you know one can but strive and hope for the next aim for it aim for it exactly um the idea of writing kind of psychological thrillers I think one of the bits that must be wonderful about it is that you get to explore the darker sides of your characters and particularly women and 
the kind of darker, more troubling experiences and ways of coping with those experiences that we have and that maybe we don't talk about. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of how you decide kind of what what character elements you're going to bring in and how you build those characters? Regrettably, I'd say quite a lot of my first person work is sort of looking almost at my own shadow self and that I find writing to be a way of working through some of those more difficult aspects. I mean, certainly in terms of drink, because I think too much alcohol is not really a very good thing is the kind of bottom line yeah. decision I've come to for myself. And it's interesting as I sort of, you know, now that I'm nearly 50, and I'm feeling much more stable in my own life, that I can look back on ways of coping strategies that, you know, ways of coping and strategies that I've used in the past and thought, well, that really wasn't very helpful, was it? And, you know, and now when I speak to friends and there are people who are drinking too much or they've mm. got boyfriends who are taking too many drugs or whatever, and you just sit and think, yeah, that's not, that's not really ideal. And, but the thing is that it can be quite boring if you're sort of in a good place of, of everything sort of, you know, I've got really quite nice, comfortable existence. I mean, you know, hugely comfortable existence, but also psychologically things are much more, are much more calm than they were in my 20s and 30s. And so it's quite fun. It really is quite fun, basically, to, you know, to take things and make them much, much, much worse. I'd read some about the Stanislavski acting method, mm where you start, if I've understood it correctly, and I mean, I've just read an intro, but the, the idea that if you're going to inhabit a character in their experience, you have to try and find a kernel of truth of that in yourself. And I mean, I think it's a bit of a simplistic way of putting it, but you know, if you have to be, if you have to act someone bereaved, then you can use your experience if your hamster dying, and then you sort of take that emotion and you beat it up and make it bleed and vomit all over it and then that's what will make you be able to act the bereavement most realistically because you can kind of imagine yourself into it and I sort of feel that that's what I do I mean in it ends at midnight the the things I found the most fun to write in that book are the bits set in 1989 and 90, which were based in many parts on my experience being in sixth form in Edinburgh and, you know, going out, starting drinking. And in the book, there's some absolutely appalling things that happen, which were not what happened at all. You know, it was there was no sort of truth in that at all. But, you know, you take something good and you just make it really dark. The thing is, if you had people behaving properly and making good decisions, then in Blood Orange, at the end of the first chapter, she's saying, the main character is saying, you know, tonight I'm only going to have one drink. Tonight I'm going to go home and, and put my daughter to bed. If she'd done that, that would have been the end of the novel. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course she's going to get, you know, some of the feedback I get from readers is, why is she making all of these poor choices? Because it's a fucking novel. Because it's a crime novel. Because you're reading it, I hope, from the comfort of your home. You know, you're in a, in a reasonable place with yourself. You're in a reasonable place with your relationships with other people. 
And so you can read it almost as a voyeur. You know, you're watching this car crash happening. Or it might be that you're not in a particularly happy state. I mean, I have heard from a couple of readers who have been in situations of domestic abuse and that they have found it to be helpful in the sense that it's 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 validated their experience and it's stopped them being gaslit because they've gone, hang on a minute, this is that's not right what you're doing to me because when he's doing it, he's definitely the baddie. So I think, yeah, it's creating car crash telly, isn't it? That well, I, you... I mean, I think it's really interesting that at the moment there is such a hunger for psychological thrillers. You know, like I've spoken to a couple of agents and every time I speak to an agent, they're like, and have you thought about writing a psychological thriller? You know, because there's just this desire for them everywhere. And I think it's really interesting that's happening now at an exact point in time where we're also having this kind of rise in wellness and this sort of, this kind of how to live a very honourable or good life, which is, you know, all the clean eating and, you know, prioritising your self-care and which all, again, has a level of, you know, niceness in it, right? Actually, it's, it is nice to look after yourself. It's very healthy to do that. And then you take it to an extreme level and it's, goes a bit crazy but there's something that I think is really interesting that at this point in time where we are really idolizing that and holding it up as the bastion of how we should all be behaving we're also then going home and devouring all these thrillers with women behaving really quite badly yeah part of it's because there's a sort of thank god it's not me And I do wonder, a lot of the the mothering ones, you know, where someone's a bad mother or perceived to be a bad mother, I mean, I wonder if that might be that people, you know, who maybe feel that they're not mothering as well as they could, they read that and they think, well, I'm not as bad as her, at least. So, you know, it can help. I mean, also, though, that the wellness and the self-care, I mean, it's all great. And it's, you know, I'm enjoying it. I know it's good. But I mean, let's face it, it is a bit dull. You know, it's a little bit, it's not the same as going and, you know, going out for lunch and it turning into a 12-hour drinking session that ends up in Soho (laughs) dancing on a table, you know, where you're absolutely sodden off your head on Jack Daniels and Coke and you smoke three packs of Marlboro Lights. I mean, I say that and there is a strong part of me that's like, oh, fuck yeah, I'd love to go and do that right now. And so, and I'm I'm not going to because actually I know it's no good for me and I know it's not the answer to any question. So there is something quite good, I think, about reading you know, that in a way, they're almost morality tales. Yeah. That it's, you know, that this is not the way that you do things. It's not, and, and if you do do it this way, something bad's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and something bad is happening. Um, and, you know, and generally, the main characters in psychological thrillers, are, they're not flawed. They're damaged, these women. You know, and it is generally women. They're damaged. They're, you know, they're dealing with the legacy of, of you know, toxic childhoods or, or abusive relationships. And, and before you realise what the damage is that you're facing, where you think everything's just your fault, it, then of course you're going to drown all of that in booze and drugs and bad sex and, you know, chasing all the addictions. And and if you look at any kind of studies on addiction, I mean, is it Gabo Mate? It's all about, yeah. the, you know, where's the hurt? You know, it's look at the hurt. And if you find the hurt, and if you heal the hurt, then that's going to lead to an end of the addictive behaviors or at least give you better coping skills so i think that 
you know, one can learn from psychological thrillers, you know, that getting shit-faced on red wine isn't going to solve your issues. Sadly and, and you can do that while having a lovely warm bath, you know, before getting into your clean <laughs> bed. I mean, it's, it's, it's the best way of dealing with things. And it gives you catharsis too, because, you know, if you read the ones that, that end with a, you know, with a form of justice being carried out on an abusive man. I mean, that's very satisfying. <laughs> I love it. It's like, rather than killing your own husband, read somebody killing theirs and feel better. <laughs> exactly. You realise that your husband might be a pain in the ass the way he does the dishwasher, but he's not as bad as the bloke in the girl on the train. <laughs> This is true. This is true. <laughs> Maria, I love this. I'm seeing the whole world differently. Thank you so much for talking to me. Before we end, I always ask everyone, Diana, one thing that you have learnt about writing that you would pass on to a first-time book writer, what, what advice would you pass on? I think it would go back to the first draft issue. Try and do a small number of words a day you know, try and do 500 words or a 1000 words a day, five days a week, and just be very consistent with that. And then you'll have a draft. And when you have a draft, when you've got to the end, then you can fix it. And then you can sort out the plot holes, the thin characterization, the lack of description, all the rest of it. But once you know what happens, you can make the whole thing much, much better. Don't be afraid of the first shitty draft, because in the editing, magic can be worked. I love that. Harriet, thank you so much. Um, when is It Ends at Midnight out? Anyone it's going to be out on the 14th of April. Amazing, 14th of April. So you can pre-order it. We love a pre-order here at A Truth University, mm -hmm. acknowledged. And also you can go and read the back catalogue as well, which are great. They are great reading the bath books, I have to say. Yes, they're really good fun. Thank you so much, Harriet. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed that. That was Harriet Tice and It Ends at Midnight is available for pre-order now. I always like to end these podcasts with a little creative exercise for you to do in case you want some inspiration for your own creative projects. This week's starting point is inspired by Harriet realising she had to change the ending of It Ends at Midnight. Rather than starting something new, this week I'm suggesting can you go back to something old and recreate it? This might be a short story you wrote years ago or a painting you thought was finished and so put aside. Whatever it is, pick it back up and have a good look at it. Perhaps you want to redo it entirely. Perhaps you want to recreate it with a few little changes. Or maybe you're inspired to create part two in a series. Whatever you do, think of this original piece as the jumping off point. As ever, I'd love to hear how you got on. You can tag me on Instagram at Harriet Minter or send me an email harriet.minter at gmail.com. I'm off to see if I can go find that elusive flow again, but I'll be back next week with another cracking author talking all about their work. And if you've enjoyed this episode, do please leave a rating and a review. It really helps others find the series and makes me feel all glowy inside. See you next week.